0: I think we're there. Are we on? Yes? Okay, great. Well, as David hinted, we're starting a new s- preaching series, just four sessions, and uh, we're looking at eternity. Right, this is the overall title of what we're looking at. And um, if you look to your bulletins, you'll see that um, this morning uh, the subject is Paradise Gained. When you hear that word paradise, what do you think of? Just pause for a moment. What's in your mind? Um, I'm not going to ask you to shout it out, but what's in your mind when you think of the word paradise? Well, actually, the word only appears three times in the Bible, and all those occasions are in the New Testament. And perhaps the most um, famous occasion is when Jesus responded to the thief who was next to him on the cross you remember one of the thieves taunted Jesus but the other one was indignant about that and he said to Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom remember me and Jesus' response was truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise now does that tell us very much about paradise well as I thought about it there's more there than meets the eye perhaps. Um, Firstly, it tells us it's where Jesus is near. You will be with me in paradise. Secondly, it's Jesus who grants entry to paradise. Thirdly, it's for those who turn to Christ. Jesus didn't make this offer to the other thief or to the people standing round. It was to the thief who humbly turned to Jesus. Uh, and it begins the moment uh, we die. Today you will be with me in paradise. So there's quite a lot there, isn't there? But tantalisingly, Jesus does not give us any other information about what paradise is like. Did the thief know? Probably not. Was he bothered? No, probably not. Jesus' words were probably enough. But we'll come to that later. So, is there a general expectation amongst people today that there is life after death? No, some of you are shaking, some are saying yes, okay. Um, the answer will depend on many things, such as religion and culture and the period in which we live. Actually, we live in a very skeptical age, don't you? People are very skeptical of such things. In our 21st century Western society, most people seem to be more concerned about the manner of their death rather than what, if anything, lies beyond. They are concerned, will I die of an illness? Will I be in pain? Will I die in my sleep? Will I have a heart attack? What will it be like? Will it be prolonged? And so on. And perhaps this is typified by the comment of the actor and film producer Woody Allen, He said, it's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Nevertheless, deep down, there is something in man that senses there must be more than this. There must be more than the struggles of life and so on. King Solomon commented in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he, that's God, has put eternity in men's hearts. We're kind of wired to, to respond to eternity. And hence the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes. What that really means is, if you're being chased by the enemy and you're hiding and the enemy's approaching, um, so many people who've never prayed or never thought about God reach out to him because there's something inside that drives them to do that there are many views on what happens when we die for some they would say there's absolutely nothing we're just a bunch of chemicals and when we're gone we're gone when we're dead we're dead for others however they want to believe that there is life after death and they hope that they're going to a place of peace and rest and joy and it'll have all those things that they've missed out on in this life This hope is uh, reinforced by the understandable efforts of mourners at funerals to comfort those and reassure the bereaved that their loved one is now free from pain and suffering and that they're in a better place. Maybe they would call that paradise. Some have latched on to the testimony of those who have had what is sometimes called a near-death experience when they have apparently died and then revived to tell about all their wonderful experiences and what people have to say is sometimes fascinating you may have read uh, about it it's fascinating and and yet some scientists say that there is a rational explanation and it may have to do with the excess CO2 in the blood so that's a shame isn't it (laughs) but anyway as fascinating as those, t- those testimonies are, they are not reliable. Um, they are not reliable. So here we have two opposing beliefs and both of them give false hopes. The first which says there is nothing ignores the fact that we are spiritual beings. We're not just a bunch of chemicals and that we'll have to give an account of our lives to God. And the second assumes that paradise is the automatic destination of those who die, irrespective of their relationship to God in this life. The Bible makes it clear that everyone, personally, will one day have to give an account to God. How awesome and terrifying is that? If we know anything of the awesomeness of God, that could be a terrifying prospect. But the Bible also shows us how we can access God's grace and mercy and how we can escape that judgment and stand before God righteous and inherit the kingdom of God, which is the last, in the last book of the Bible is called the paradise of God. So that's the second of the references to paradise. The thief was one, this is the second. It's the paradise of God. You may be someone who has received the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. You know that you're saved, but you're not sure exactly what happens when we die. So we just have a brief look at what the Bible may have to say about this. We can't touch every reference, of course, but even for Christians, death is not without pain and the loss grieving the loss of loved ones is an appropriate response jesus wept at the tomb of his friend lazarus that was appropriate jesus wept at that tomb but some of the pain is removed and here's what paul says to the thessalonian church 1 thessalonians 4:13 but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. This suggests that Christians have a hope that other people do not have. And when the New Testament talks about hope, it's not something that may be in doubt, like, I hope it won't rain today. It's not that kind of hope, but something that is sure and certain, something we can look to- forward to with anticipation. And joy—that's the kind of hope we're talking about. So, what is the Christian hope then? Well, let's put it simply. First of all, Uh, the one who dies, the person who dies in Christ, the person who has received Christ as Savior in this life, goes to be with Christ. And then, when Christ returns at the end of the age, and all history is wound uh, uh, up—sorry, and all history is is wound up—and Christ. Uh, w- will give uh, us our resurrection bodies and then salvation will be complete for many, for many Christians that will be enough and I suspect that it was enough for the thief on the cross they didn't, don't need to know anything else don't, work, don't confuse me with the details that's good enough for me and while some of the things that we hope for in the age to come are described in John's vision in Revelation, and uh, this vision of the future, such as freedom from tears and pain and mourning and crying and most of all death, the defining feature the defining feature of this paradise is the dwelling of God with man. That's the defining feature of paradise. God dwelling with his people. I'll just read from Revelation 21, the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So it's God in the midst of his people that defines this paradise. If we trace God's dealing with people people of this world over the centuries as recorded uh, in the Bible his blessings were not principally about the material good that he would do for his people but it but rather that he would go with them that he would dwell with them it was that presence in fact that was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed God they lost the sense of the presence of God which was called Paradise Lost by some. And God was then progressively restoring this through the nation of Israel, a a progressive revelation uh, of restoring his presence. As the Israelites travelled through the wilderness, God's presence was revealed through a pillar uh, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then... God gave instructions to Moses concerning the construction of the tabernacle, a special tent and a courtyard where God would meet with Moses and Aaron and the people would know that God was in the midst of his people. As they travelled through the, the wilderness towards the promised land and then they camped, the tabernacle would be in the middle of the people. All the tribes would camped round about the tabernacle, and so they knew that God was in the midst of them. Later, when the people settled in the land through David and Solomon, the temple was constructed in Jerusalem, and again it was a place of worship and a place of the presence of God. Then nearly a thousand years later, one greater than the temple appeared, Jesus Christ, who at his birth was described as Emmanuel, God with us and who boldly said to his followers whoever has seen me has seen the father that's in John 14 verse 9 just before he said this he reassures his followers about the future they were clearly anxious he just told them that someone was going to betray him previously he told them that they were going to Jerusalem and wicked men would take him and kill him and put him to death but on the third day he would rise again so they're naturally fairly anxious and this is what he says to them let not your hearts be troubled believe in God, believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And some people have latched on to the authorised version of this text, which talked about many mansions. You probably remember that. Okay, many mansions. And their imaginations have worked overtime to conjure up a picture of what their mansion would be like. And songs were around, like, I'm going to my mansion in the sky. But this is not a statement about architecture. Um, This misses the point. What Jesus was saying is, there is plenty of room. There are many rooms. There's plenty of room for all who will come. But the most important thing that Jesus said was, I will take you to be with me. And whatever the Father's house is like, and I think we can substitute perhaps the word paradise for the Father's house, we will be with him just like he would later say to the thief later in john 17 where we have jesus praying for his disciples the whole of that chapter is taken up with this and it's just a wonderful chapter and jesus is praying he says father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am so that my glots so that to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. His prayer is that the disciples would be with him and see his glory. So the greatest thing about paradise is that it will be about Jesus and his glory and his splendor that we can marvel at and enjoy and we can share in. This will be our all-consuming experience experiencing the presence and the glory of Jesus. I ask you at the beginning what comes to mind um, when you think of the word paradise. Maybe that's changed a little bit as we've gone on, but I decided I'd put the word paradise in Google images. And perhaps not surprisingly, what came up were idyllic scenes of tropical islands, white sands, blue skies and seas, palm trees, waterfalls, and exotic flowers, a whole lot with like, you know, page after page of all these images. And it's understandable. We, we look at the best that we have around us and say, "That's paradise, that's paradise. This is the best that the world offers." Now I do believe that there will be a physical aspect uh, to the paradise, to paradise, as part of the new heavens and the new Earth that we read about just now. Uh, which will be covered in more detail in a couple, two or three weeks' time. But for now, it is the prospect of being with Jesus that should thrill our hearts. King David, who loved the Lord, um, but who didn't have the benefit of the complete revelation of Jesus that we had, he wrote this in Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after what was it more money more fame uh, victory over his enemies no he says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple David loved to be where God's glory dwelt he obviously had experiences that made him hunger and thirst for more So how do we have that hunger and thirst? How do we have a picture of of paradise um, that is so attractive because it is Jesus and his glory? Well, one of the ways is that we get to know Jesus in this life. Uh, By that I mean by meditating on his life, his ministry, his suffering and sacrifice, his grace and his mercy, his triumph over death, his victorious resurrection and his glorious return then the more will be the hope in our hearts of meeting him face to face and sharing in his glory for eternity well although that should be the um, sufficient motivation for us to live for him and be looked forward to his coming nevertheless there are some legitimate questions we can ask Um, and try and get some answers from the Bible so firstly what happens when we die what I mean is the moment we die what happens there are some terms that people use that are not helpful like intermediate state waiting room, soul sleep when Paul um, says that Christians have fallen asleep it's just a way of saying that they've died it's just another way actually we go to be with Christ and it is a conscious experience paul wrote to the philippians in chapter 1 for to me for me to live is Christ and to die is gain if i am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me yet which shall i choose i cannot tell i'm hard pressed between the two my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That was Paul's expectation, to depart and to be with Christ. But we wait, along with all those who have died in Christ, for the completion of our redemption, a bodily resurrection. Jesus dying in our place and rising from the dead reverses God's verdict on sin and death as it was pronounced in the garden. It reverses that. That is death that is spiritual, physical and eternal. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15 is making the point that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of a harvest of which we are all part. All believers are part of that harvest and that Jesus is the first fruits and indeed Jesus is the guarantee of the resurrection for believers. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, it's, it's rather long, but we'll just pick some out. But I've talked about this first fruits idea before, and uh, it, it's part of the same harvest. Jesus' resurrection is part of the same harvest of which we'll be, we will be part. So from verse 1, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas that's Peter then to the twelve then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep they've died then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and then verse 20 now Concentrating on the resurrection But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead For as in Adam all die So in Christ shall all be made alive But each in his turn or In order Christ the first fruits then at the com- at the coming so at his coming uh, those who belong to Christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the father after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet if you want to know more of that read the rest of the chapter and also in 1 Thessalonians 4 13 to 18 is another reference to the coming of Jesus and and the believers being caught up with him. So that's the question, what happens when we die and what happens really at the end of the age? Um, Another question is, will we see our loved ones again? Will we recognise them? I think that's our desire, isn't it? Our great desire that we will. Jesus told a parable about a rich man and a beggar called Lazarus and the rich man recognised Lazarus when he went to heaven. There was a recognition, that's in Luke 16. And Peter recognised Elijah and Moses who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember that Jesus took Peter, James and John with him up a mountain and he was transfigured before them. A foretaste of his glory we think. And there appeared Elijah and Moses, and Peter recognised them. However, Jesus himself provides our greatest assurance. Although there were some differences about Jesus after his resurrection, his friends recognised him. We talked about 500 people seeing him after his resurrection. But um, he was identifiable unless he didn't want Um, them to identify him at the time such as those two disciples on the road to Emmaus they didn't recognise Jesus at first but when he broke bread they did uh, recognise him and um, what uh, John says this uh, in his first letter chapter 3 beloved we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. I think from those scriptures we can say, yes, we'll be like Jesus and we will recognize our loved ones. However, relationships are likely to be different. In Matthew 22, we have the Sadducees, that's part of the Jewish ruling party who did not believe in the resurrection and they asked Jesus a trick question about the resurrection and this is involving a woman who had multiple husbands remarrying um, after each of them had died and the question was that the the Sadducees put to him whose wife would she be in the resurrection trying really to, to rubbish the idea of the resurrection But Jesus answered, he said, you're wrong because you do not, uh, neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels. We will not be angels as um, some have once thought. No, we will be like the angels. In fact, we will be a higher order than the angels. But we will be like them inasmuch as That they do not marry. So before we end, I think we must ask the question: um, what about the unbeliever? I've been talking largely about what happens when believers um, uh, trusting in God, what happens when they die, what happens at the end of the age. And the Bible makes it clear that God will deal with all people. All people will be resurrected, some to judgment and some to eternal life Um, in Hebrews um, chapter 9 we read this and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him So it's given to men once to die and then to face judgment. God's sentence on the unrepentant is eternal punishment in hell. Um, I don't like the idea, to be honest. I wish it wasn't in the Bible, but it's there. It's there in the Bible. Some of the most sobering and awesome statements on this punishment come from the lips of Jesus. And it is an essential part of the gospel message. It's an essential part of the gospel message. Now though the language is often figurative, the underlying message is nonetheless grave. But the cry goes out. How can a God of love consign people to hell? God's love is righteous and holy. And his wrath is a measured response to our rebellion not indiscriminate fit of temper or burst of rage some of God's judgment is revealed now as he allows people to experience the consequences of their godliness, godlessness sorry in Romans 1 you can read about that but the full extent is reserved for the end of time but it is this wrath, this wrath of God against sin that Jesus rescues us from and saves us from this is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1 for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us or rescues us from the wrath to come. God is just and righteous and must punish sin. We all have that sense of justice, don't we? We say wrongdoers must be punished. Sin must be punished. But God is also loving and merciful. And in Jesus, God has managed to reconcile these two aspects of his his character. Because our sin will be punished. There's no doubt about that. Our sin will be punished um, either in Christ on our behalf or it will be punished in us. That's a fact. It will be punished. Either in Christ as he died on the cross for us or it, w- or it will be punished in us. The arrangement the arrangement will be just and no one will have caused complain so without the doctrine of hell the gospel message loses its power people say well I'm saved what are you saved from we are saved from the just wrath of God against our unrighteousness and sin for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave his only son to live and to die and to take the consequence of our sins upon himself. Last time I preached, I talked briefly about when our son Kevin um, had had one brain tumour and then another and was waiting uh, in hospital to go up to London and we were able to share the gospel with him And he put his trust in Jesus. And as we left that ward, I said to him, Kev is no longer a black hole, but the welcoming arms of Jesus. The words are left with him. And I sincerely believe that. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God is not willing that people should perish, that they should suffer, that they should face judgment. And he is patient with us. At his heart, the gospel message is simple. Otherwise, the response of the thief on the cross would not have saved him. But it did. He put his trust in Jesus, the Son of God. And he heard the words, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. I just ask you, have you heard those assuring words? Do you know, do you know where you are going? Do you know that your future in paradise is secure? If not, do something about it today. God is patient but the Bible also says, today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. So don't Delay. Don't hesitate. Put your trust in Jesus today. Thank you. We're going to sing a song. There's a pl-